Chapter Sixteen, Part One of My Life on the Plains. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The close of the last article left my command on the Washita, still surrounded by a superior but badly defeated force of Indians. We were burdened with a considerable number of prisoners and quite a number of our own and the enemy's wounded and had in our possession nearly nine hundred ponies with which we had just captured from the enemy. We were far away, just how far we did not know, from our train of supplies, and the latter with its escort was in danger of capture and destruction by the savages if we did not act to prevent it. We felt convinced that we could not, in the presence of so large a body of hostile Indians, hope to make a long march through their country, the latter favorable to the Indian mode of attack by surprise and ambush, and keep with us the immense herd of captured ponies. Such a course would only encourage attack under circumstances which would almost ensure defeat and unnecessary loss to us. We did not need the ponies while the Indians did. If we retained them, they might conclude that one object of our expedition against them was to secure plunder, an object thoroughly consistent with the red man's idea of war. Instead, it was our desire to impress upon his uncultured mind that our every act and purpose had been simply to inflict deserved punishment upon him for the many murders and other depredations committed by him and around the homes of the defenseless settlers on the frontier. Impelled by these motives, I decided neither to attempt to take the ponies with us, nor abandon them to the Indians, but to adopt the only measure left, to kill them. To accomplish this seemingly, like most measure of war, cruel but unnecessary act, four companies of cavalrymen were detailed, dismounted as a firing party. Before they reluctantly engaged in this uninviting work, I took Romeo, the interpreter, and proceeded to the few lodges near the center of the village which we had reserved from destruction, and in which were collected the prisoners, consisting of upward of sixty squaws and children. Romeo was directed to assemble the prisoners in one body, as I desired to assure them of kind treatment at our hands, a subject about which they were greatly wrought up also to tell them that we should expect of them and to inform them of our intention to march probably all that night directing them at the same time to proceed to the herd and select therefrom a suitable number of ponies to carry the prisoners on the march when romeo had collected them in a single group he acting as an interpreter acquainted them with my purpose in calling them together at the same time assuring them that they could rely confidently upon the fulfillment of any promises I made them, and I was the big chief. The Indians refer to all officers of a command as chiefs, while the officer in command is designated as the big chief. After I had concluded what I desired to say to them, they signified their approval and satisfaction by gathering around me and going through an extensive series of handshaking. One of the middle-aged squaws then informed Romeo that she wished to speak on behalf of herself and companions. Assent having been given to this, she began the delivery of an address which 
for wisdom of sentiment and easy, natural, but impassioned delivery, might have been heard with intense interest by an audience of cultivated refinement. From her remarks interpreted by Romeo, I gathered much, in fact the first reliable information as to what band we had attacked at daylight, which chiefs commanded, and many interesting scraps of information. She began by saying that now she and the women and children about her were in the condition of captivity, which for a long time she had prophesied would be theirs sooner or later. She claimed to speak not as a squaw, but as the sister of the head chief of her band, Black Kettle, who had fallen that morning almost the moment the attack was made. He it was who was the first to hear our advance, and, leaping forth from his lodge with rifle in hand, uttered the first war-whoop, and fired the first shot as a rally signal to his warriors, and was almost immediately after shot down by the opening volley of the cavalry. Often she had warned her brother of the danger the village, with its women and children, was exposed to, owing to the frequent raiding and war parties which from time to time had been permitted to go forth and depredate upon the settlements of the white man. In the end, it was sure to lead to detection and punishment, and now her words had only proven too true. Not a chief or warrior of the village in her belief survived the battle of the forenoon, and what was to become of all these women and children bereft of everything and of every friend? True, it was just. The warriors had brought this fate upon themselves and their families by their unprovoked attacks upon the white man. Black Kettle, the head chief and the once trusted friend of the white man, had fallen. Little Rock, the chief second in rank in the village, had also met his death while attempting to defend his home against his enemies. Others were named in the order of their rank or prowess as warriors, but all had gone the same way. Who was left to care for the women and children who still lived? Only last night, she continued, did the last war party return from the settlements, and it was to rejoice over their achievements that the entire village were engaged until a late hour dancing and singing. This was why their enemies were able to ride almost into their lodges before they were aroused by the noise of the attack. For several minutes she continued to speak, first umbrading in the bitterest terms the chiefs and warriors who had been the cause of their capture, then bewailing in the most plaintive manner their sad and helpless condition. Turning to me, she added, You claim to be a chief. This man, pointing to Romeo, says you are the big chief. If this be true, and you are what he claims, show that you can act like a great chief and secure for us that treatment which the helpless are entitled to. After the delivery of this strongly melodramatic harangue, there was introduced a little by-play in which I was unconsciously made to assume a more prominent part than ever by inclinations or the laws of society might approve. Black Kettle's sister, whose name was Mawisa, and whose address had just received the hearty approval of her companions by their earnest expression of ugh, the Indian word intended for applause, then stepped into the group of squaws. 
and after looking earnestly at the face of each for a moment approached a young indian girl probably seventeen years of age and taking her by the hand conducted her to where i was standing placing the hand of the young girl in mine she proceeded in the indian tongue to the delivery of what i in my ignorance of the language presumed was a form of administering a benediction as her manner and gestures corresponded with this idea never dreaming of her purpose but remembering how sensitive and suspicious the indian nature was and any seeming act of inattention or disrespect on my part might be misunderstood i stood a passive participant in the strange ceremony then being enacted after concluding the main portion of the formality she engaged in what seemed an invocation of the great spirit casting her eyes reverently upward at the same time moving her hand slowly down over the faces of the young squaw and myself by this time my curiosity got the better of my silence and turning to romeo who stood near me and who i knew was familiar with the indian customs i quietly inquired what is this woman doing romeo with a broad grin on his swarthy face he replied why she's marrying you to that young squaw although never claimed to be an exponent of the peace policy about which so much muck has been said and written yet i entertained the most peaceable sentiment toward all indians who were in a condition to do no harm nor violate any law after a while cherishing these friendly feelings and desiring to do all in my power to render our captives comfortable and free from anxiety regarding their future treatment at our hands i think even the most strenuous and ardent advocate of that peace policy which teaches that the indian should be left free and unmolested in the gratification of his simple tastes and habits will at least not wholly condemn me when they learn that this last touching and unmistakable proof of confidence and esteem offered by mawisha and gracefully if not blushingly acquiesced in by the indian maiden was firmly but respectfully declined the few reasons which forced me to deny myself the advantages of this tempting alliance were certain circumstances over which i then had no control among which was a previous and already solemnized ceremony of this character which might have a tendency to render the second somewhat invalid then again i had not been consulted in regard to my choice in this matter a trifling consideration but still having its due influence i had not had the opportunities to become acquainted with the family of her young damsel who thus proposed to link her worldly fate with mine her father's bank account might or might not have been in a favorable condition no opportunity had been given me to study the tastes disposition or character of the young lady whether she was fond of music literature or domestic duties all of these questions with which i was not sufficiently familiar to justify me in taking the important step before me i did not however like certain candidates for office thrice decline by standing up and with my hand pressed to my heart said your husband i cannot be but through the intermediation of romeo the interpreter who from the first had been highly entertained by what he saw was an excellent joke on the big chief and 
wondering in his own mind how I would extricate myself without giving offence, I explained to Mawisha my due appreciation of the kindness intended by herself and her young friend, but that according to the white man's law I was debarred from availing myself of the offer, at the same time assuring them of my high consideration, etc. Glad to get away to duties that called me elsewhere, I left with Romeo. As soon as we had turned our backs on the group, I inquired of Romeo what object could have been in view which induced Black Kettle's sister to play the part she did. That's easy enough to understand. She knows they are in your power, and her object is to make friends with you as far as possible. But you don't believe anything she tells you, do you? Why, that squaw would give her the chance, and she'd lift your or my scalp from us and never wink. Lord, I've heard em talk fine too often to be catched so easy. To hear talk and abuse old Black Kettle and the rest that I hope we're done for, you'd think that Squaw never had a hand in torturing to death many a poor devil who had been picked up by them. But it is a fact. Tain't no two ways about it. I've lived with them people too long not to know em root and branch. When she was talking all that Oliver to you about protecting him and all that sorts of stuff. If she could have known that minute that these Indians were about to gobble us up, she'd have been the very first one to ram a knife smack into ye. That's the way they always talk when they want anything. Do you know her game and wantin' to marry that young squaw to you? Well, I tell ye, if you'd have married that squaw, then she'd have told ye that all the rest of them were her kinfolk, and as a natural sort of thing you'd a be expectin' to kind of provide and take care of your wife relations. That's just as I tell it to you, for don't I know? Didn't I marry a young Cheyenne squaw and give her old father two of my best ponies for her? And it wasn't a week till every tarnal Injun in the village, old and young, came to my lodge, and my squaw tried to make me believe they were all relations to hern, and that I ought to give him some grub. But I didn't do nothing of the sort. Well, how did you get out of it, Romeo? Get out of it? Why, I got up by just taking my ponies and traps, and at the first good chance I lit out. That's how I got out, and I was satisfied to marry one or two of them, but when it come to marrying an entire tribe, excuse me. At this point, Romeo was interrupted by the officer in command of the men detailed to kill the ponies. The firing party was all ready to proceed with its work, and was only waiting until the squaws should secure a sufficient number of ponies to transport all the prisoners on the march. The troopers had endeavored to catch the ponies, but they were too wild and unaccustomed to white men to permit them to approach. When the squaws entered the herd, they had no difficulty in selecting and bridling their requisite number. These being taken off by themselves, the work of destruction began on the remainder, and was continued until nearly eight hundred ponies were thus disposed of. All this time the Indians who had been fighting us from the outside covered the hills in the distance, deeply interested spectators of this to them strange proceeding. 
The loss of so many animals of value was a severe blow to the tribes, as nothing so completely impairs the war-making facilities of the Indians of the plains as the deprivation or disabling of their ponies. In the description of the opening of the battle in the preceding chapter, I spoke of the men having removed their overcoats and haversacks when about to charge the village. These had been disposed of carefully on the ground, and one man from each company left to guard them, this number being deemed sufficient, as they would be within rifle-shot of the main command. Besides, the enemy was then supposed would be inside our lines, and sufficiently employed in taking care of itself to prevent any meddling on his part with the overcoats and haversacks. This was partly true, but we had not calculated upon Indians appearing in force and surrounding us. When this did occur, however, their first success was in effecting the capture of the overcoats and rations of the men, the guard barely escaping to the village. This was a most serious loss, as the men were destined to suffer great discomfort from the cold and their rations being in the haversacks and it being uncertain when we should rejoin our train. They were compelled to endure both cold and hunger. It was when the Indians discovered our overcoats and galloped to their capture that one of my stag hounds, Blucher, seeing them riding and yelling as if engaged in the chase, dashed from the village and joined the Indians, who no sooner saw him than they shot him through with an arrow. Several months afterward I discovered his remains on the ground near where the overcoats had been deposited on that eventful morning. Many noteworthy incidents were observed or reported during the fight. Before the battle began, our Osage allies, in accordance with the Indian custom, dressed in their war costume, painting their faces in all imaginable colors except one tall fine-looking warrior who retained his ordinary dress upon inquiring of the chief little beaver why this one did not array himself as the others had done he informed me that it was in obedience to a law among all the tribes under which any chief or warrior who has had a near relative killed by an enemy belonging to another tribe it is not permitted to don the war costume or put on war paint until he has avenged the murder by taking a scalp from the same member of the hostile tribe. The war party of the Cheyennes had visited the Osage village the preceding summer under friendly pretenses. They had been hospitably entertained at the lodge of the warriors referred to by his squaw, he being absent on a hunt. When ready to depart, they killed his squad, destroyed his lodge, and until he could secure a scalp, he must go on the warpath, unadorned by feathers or paint. After the battle had been waged for a couple of hours in the morning, I saw this warrior approaching, his horse urged to its highest speed, and in his hand I saw waving wildly overhead something I could not distinguish until he halted by my side when I perceived that it was an entire scalp fresh and bleeding. His vengeance had been complete, and he was again restored to the full privilege of a warrior, a right he was not long in exercising. As the next time I saw him on the field, his face was completely hidden under the stripes of yellow, black, and vermilion. 
the colors being so arranged apparently as to give him the most hideous visage imaginable riding in the vicinity of the hospital i saw a little bugler boy sitting on a bundle of dressed robes near where the surgeon was dressing and caring for the wounded his face was completely covered with blood which was trickling down over his cheek from a wound in his forehead at first glance i thought a pistol bullet had entered his skull but on stopping to inquire of him the nature of his injury he informed me that an indian had shot him in the head with a steel-pointed arrow the arrow had struck him just above the eye and upon entering the skull had glanced under the covering of the latter coming out near the ear giving the appearance of having passed through the head there the arrow remained until the bugler arrived at the hospital where he received prompt attention the arrow being barbed could not be withdrawn at once but by cutting off the steel point the surgeon was able to withdraw the wooden shaft without difficulty the little fellow bore his suffering manfully i asked him if he saw the indian who wounded him without replying at once he shoved his hand deep down into his capacious trousers pocket and fished up nothing more nor less than the scalp of an indian adding in a nonchalant manner if anybody thinks i didn't see him i want them to take a look at that he had killed the indian with his revolver after receiving the arrow wound in his head after driving off the indians who had attacked us from the outside so as to prevent them from interfering with our operation in the vicinity of the village parties were sent here and there to look up the dead and wounded of both sides in spite of the most thorough search there were still undiscovered major elliott and his nineteen enlisted men including the sergeant major for whose absence we were unable to satisfactorily account officers and men of the various commands were examined but nothing was elicited from them except that major elliott had been seen about daylight charging with his command into the village i had previously given him up as killed but was surprised that so many of the men should be missing and none of their comrades be able to account for them all the ground inside of the advanced lines held by the indians who attacked us after our capture of the village was closely and carefully examined in the hopes of finding the bodies of some if not all the absentees but with no success it was then evident that when the other bands attempted to reinforce our opponents of the early morning they had closed their lines about us in such a manner as to cut off elliot and nineteen of our men what had been the fate of this party after leaving the main command this was a question to be answered only in surmises and a few of these were favorable to the escape of our comrades at last one of the scouts reported that soon after the attack on the village began he had seen a few warriors escaping mounted from the village through a gap that existed in our line between the commands of elliot and thompson and that elliot and a small party of troopers were in close pursuit that a short time after he had heard the very sharp firing in the direction taken by the indians in elliot's party but that as the firing had continued for only a few minutes he had thought nothing more of it until the prolonged absence of our men recalled it to his mind parties were sent in the direction indicated by the scout he accompanied them 
but after a search extending nearly two miles all the parties returned reporting their efforts to discover some trace of elliot and his men fruitless as it was now lacking but an hour of night we had to make an effort to get rid of the indians who still loitered in strong force on the hills within plain view of our position our main desire was to draw them off from the direction in which our train might be approaching and thus render it secure from attack until under the protection of the entire command when we could defy any force our enemies could muster against us the last lodge having been destroyed and all the ponies except those required for the pursuit having been killed the command was drawn in and united near the village making dispositions to overcome any resistance which might be offered to our advance by throwing out a strong force of skirmishers we set out down the valley in the direction where the other villages had been reported and toward the hills on which were collected the greatest number of indians the column moved forward in one body with colors flying and band playing while our prisoners all mounted on captured ponies were under sufficient guard immediately in the rear of the advanced troops for a few moments after our march began the indians on the hills remained silent spectators evidently at a loss at first to comprehend our intention in thus setting out at that hour of the evening and directing our course as if another night march was contemplated and more than all in the direction of their villages where all that they possessed was supposed to be this aroused them to action as we could plainly see considerable commotion among them chiefs riding hither and thither as if in anxious consultation with each other as to the course to be adopted whether the fact that they could not fire upon our advance without endangering the lives of their own people who were prisoners in our hands or some other reason prevailed with them they never offered to fire a shot or retard our movements in any manner but instead assembled their outlying detachments as rapidly as possible and began a perceptive movement down the valley in advance of us fully impressed with the idea no doubt that our purpose was to overtake their fleeing people and herds and administer the same treatment to them that the occupants of the upper village had received this was exactly the effect i desired and our march was conducted with such appearance and determination as rapidly that this conclusion on their part was a most natural one leaving a few of their warriors to hover along our flanks and watch our progress the main body of the indians able to travel much faster than the troops soon disappeared from our sight in front we still pushed on in the same direction and continued our march in this manner until long after dark by which time we reached the deserted villages the occupants at least the non-combatants and herds having fled in the morning when the news of our attack on black kettle's village reached them we had now reached a point several miles below the site of black kettle's village and the darkness was sufficient to cover our movements from the watchful eyes of the indian scouts who had dogged our march as long as the light favored them facing the command about it was at once put in motion to reach our train not only as a measure of safety and protection to the latter but as a necessary movement to relieve the wants of the command particularly that 
portion whose haversacks and overcoats had fallen into the hands of the indians early in the morning by ten o'clock we reached the battleground but without halting pushed on following the trail we had made and striking the village the march was continued at a brisk gait until about two o'clock in the morning when i concluded it would be prudent to allow the main command to halt and bivouac until daylight sending one squadron forward without delay to reinforce the guard with the train colonel west's squadron was detailed upon this duty the main body of the troops was halted and permitted to build huge fires fuel being obtained in abundance from the timber which lined the valley of the washita our march still leading us up to the course of this stream at daylight the next morning we were again in our saddles and wending our way hopefully toward the train the location of the latter we did not know presuming that it had been pushing after us since we had taken our abrupt departure from it great was our joy and satisfaction about ten o'clock to discover the train safely in camp the teams were at once harnessed and hitched to the wagons and without halting even to prepare breakfast the march was resumed i being anxious to encamp at a certain point that night from where i intended sending scouts through with dispatches to general sheridan early in the afternoon this camp was reached it was near the point where we had first struck the timbered valley at the time not knowing that it was the valley of the washita here men and horses were given the first opportunity to procure a satisfactory meal since the few hasty morsels obtained by them during the brief halt made between nine and ten o'clock the night we arrived in the vicinity of the village after posting our pickets and rendering the camp secure from surprise by the enemy horses were unsaddled tents pitched and every means taken to obtain as comfortable a night as the limited means at our disposal and the severities of the season would permit after partaking of a satisfactory dinner i began writing my report to general sheridan first i sent for california joe and informed him that i desired to send a dispatch to general sheridan that night and would have it ready by dark so that the bearer could at once set out soon as it was sufficiently dark to conceal his movements from the scouts of the enemy who no doubt were still following and watching us i told california joe that i had selected him as the bearer of the dispatch and he was at liberty to name the number of men he desired to accompany him as it was a most perilous mission on which he was going End of chapter sixteen part one